The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. This morning, the scripture reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. You can follow along on the screen. Um, There's also Bibles underneath the chairs. We're on page 229. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land, and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you, and your gods, and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians, and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away, and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart, and two milk cows, on which there has never come a yoke, And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way, and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence." The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the Lord of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on the day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beshemesh. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. 
I was reading an article uh, a couple days ago, and it was a story about a construction worker. And uh, he was on some commercial construction site, and a nail, a six-inch nail, went through the bottom of his shoe. And so he came, rushed in on a stretcher, and uh, was in an excruciating amount of pain. And so they get him, and they have to sedate him and put him under heavy medication just to get him to calm down. And once he's under sedation, they take off his shoe, and the nail had gone right between his two toes. <laughs> Wasn't even in his foot. But he was in real pain. And so the article goes on to talk about something called psychogenic pain. And so psychogenic pain says that the brain produces uh, pain signals sometimes, even when there is actually nothing diagnosably wrong. In fact, the article mentioned that 85% of low back pain is actually undiagnosable. But the pain is real. It feels just as real as any other type of pain. And so they were talking about a remedy on, on, on what to do there, but I started thinking, I'm like, man, the brain is a pretty powerful thing, right? We can be so convinced that a nail is through our foot, but it's right between our toes. How, how true is that of other things? That we convince ourselves of things that we think to be true, but in fact might not be true. You know, that's been a problem of humanity for some time, hasn't it? We are notorious for deceiving ourselves, believing one thing when the opposite may be true. And that's why it makes a lot of sense in 1 Kings chapter 3 when Solomon, the Lord grants him one request. And his one request is, Lord, give me the wisdom and discernment to govern your people and to simply know good from evil. And this shouldn't surprise us, right? We get a diagnosis here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Or earlier in that same letter, Paul says, let no one deceive himself. If any among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. And so 1 Samuel chapter 6 is all about the foolishness of man and the wisdom of God. And so let me give us a definition of, of wisdom. Wisdom is the practical skill or the, the aptitude, the ability to understand. It, it's more or less the, the ability to know something, right? the ability to discern something. And so the opposite of wisdom, or the opposite of being wise, is to be unwise, or to not know. And so wisdom as a definition is good, but we are a distinctly Christian people. And so wisdom in a Christian sense takes it a step further. It's not just the ability to know. It's not just the ability to understand or perceive or discern but it's the ability or the skill to understand what pleases God. And so there is a distinctly Christian version of wisdom. And that's what we want to consider this morning is worldly wisdom 
and godly wisdom. And so if you're taking notes, the, the easiest way to break down the text is probably in three parts. It's verses 1 through 12. And there we'll think about the wisdom of the Philistines. And in verses 13 through 18, we'll consider the wisdom of Israel. And then finally in verses 19 through chapter 7, verse 2, we want to think about the wisdom of God. Let me pray for us before we start. Heavenly Father, we come, all of us having a, a hole, a wound of some sort, a need of some kind that only you can fill. Lord, and in our greatest ability, we can't discern what that is that we need from you, but we know that it can only come from you. And so we trust as your word is proclaimed, as your son is lifted up in song, Lord, as we, your people, come eager to be changed, Lord, that you would bear fruit. Lord, we're reminded that we cannot stir our affections for you on our own. That is a powerful work of the Holy Spirit, and so we are in need of that this morning, where we are in need to be a people that bear fruit, or that bear fruit of Christ-likeness. Lord, we, we want to leave here reflecting more your image than we came. Lord, but we can't do this work. We cannot do it on our own. Lord, would you come and be amongst us be with us. Help us to think well about 1 Samuel chapter 6, Lord, and the, the practical implications and applications for each of us. Lord, we know that your word has all that we need for life and godliness. And so we trust that and we lean into that as best we can, knowing that without your Holy Spirit, we will fall grossly short. We ask these mercies in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so last week, Jonathan walked us through 1 Samuel chapter 5. And we're at the point in 1 Samuel where the Ark of the Covenant, which at this point for uh, the nation of Israel is a visible representation of the presence of God or God with them. And so the Ark has been captured. If you want to read more about that, First Samuel chapter 4 unpacks exactly what happened. And so the ark has been now with the Philistines, their enemies, um, for seven months. And they were simply passing around the ark of the covenant to multiple cities, to Gath, to Ekron, all across. Because everywhere the ark went inside the land of the Philistines, Terror broke out, affliction, tumors. I mean, it was as if the moment that the ark was ushered into the city, terrible affliction accompanied it. And so the, the remedy for the Philistines up until this point is simply just to pass it to their neighbor. And that hasn't been working well. We see in chapter 5, verse 1, that uh, 
Dagon in the temple was destroyed. And in Gath, in verses 7 through 9, that the people were afflicted with massive tumors. And then finally, in verses 10 and 12, the tumors were so bad, and it says that the hand of the Lord was heavy, that they cried out to heaven. And so this is where we pick up in chapter 6. Right? The Philistines are like, okay, our plan to this point is not working. But they had good reason at this point to hold on to the ark because the, the, his, the history of the nation of Israel said that the ark actually represented something special beyond just the visible representation of the presence of God. It was almost as if it was a good luck charm or it seemed to be to those from the outside looking in. And so the Philistines, the last thing they wanted to do is give away the golden goose, right? They wanted to figure if they could, how, how could we harness this power? How, how could we channel it towards having us win, us be victorious, the way that the Israelites were in Jericho and other battles? And so what do they do? It says in uh, verses, verses two and three, and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? And so this appears to be the Philistines' best attempt at, at some practical wisdom, right? Wisdom on what, though? Right, what are they trying to understand? What are they trying to discern? They're trying to understand how to stay or how to stop or chill the anger of God. They're, they're trying to figure out what do we need to do to please this God of Israel so we will stop being under the hand of affliction. It's a reasonable thought. And what's interesting about that is the very means by which they go about deciding on how to satisfy a holy God is through means by which he says are abominable. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, he says that sorcery and witchcraft and magic and divination is evil and abominable in the sight of the Lord. But yet that's what they decide to do. So strike one, right? Trying to please a holy and righteous God and you do something that is specifically unholy or he calls unrighteous. And what's interesting too is this has been a practice of pagan nations for the whole span of the Bible up to this point, right? So if you remember back in Exodus chapter seven, when Pharaoh is standing with Moses and Aaron and Moses throws down his staff and it becomes a serpent. And so Pharaoh brings in his diviners and his priests and they do the same thing. And they throw down their staffs and they turn to serpents. But then if you read on, Aaron's staff swallows up the other staffs and it's pretty cool. But same thing. And in Daniel chapter two, when Nebuchadnezzar is having these dreams, he calls forth his diviners and his sorcerers and his magicians. But only Daniel has the wisdom from God to interpret the dreams. And there's story after story at how our best attempt at wisdom, or the Philistines in this case, best attempt at wisdom, falls woefully short of being able to please God. As if that wasn't bad enough, their wisdom tells them that not only are we going to return the Ark of the Covenant, 
let's send something with it. A guilt offering. If you know anything about the Levitical law, the guilt offering is legitimate. Right? In Leviticus chapter 5, we see that, that God designs in the ceremonial law five specific sacrifices. Burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering, uh, sin offering, and guilt offering. And so the guilt offering was for the atonement of sin, so they're, they're kind of on the right track here. But the point is completely missed, isn't it? Right? They, they, are, they are not trying to offer the guilt offering by means of repentance. They're trying to offer it simply to get what they want. Several weeks ago, Randy reminded us, reminded us of the difference between relationship and religion. And the, the, the ceremony, while rigorous, the ceremonial law, while rigorous and specific, was meant to point to something greater. And so often in religious activities, we miss the purpose of what we're doing. And this is exactly what happens to the Philistines. You know, Paul in Romans chapter 12 reminds us that the sacrifice that we see in the Levitical law was fulfilled in the final and ultimate sacrifice of the blood of Christ so that you and I can act as living sacrifices because it's pointing to something more, a life that pleases God. Because in Psalm 51, this is the psalm where David is lamenting his, his sinfulness with Bathsheba. He says, honestly, and this is verse 16, 17, honestly, you don't even like sacrifices, God. You would prefer a broken and contrite spirit. So the sacrifices, and we see this in Hebrews, and Hebrews unpacks the ceremonial law very, very clearly that the ceremonial law was never meant to change somebody's heart. It could never persuade the conscience of the worshiper. It was simply meant to point toward something else. But the Philistines here, in their best attempt at wisdom, cannot purify their conscience or give themselves new hearts. They cannot pursue God out of love because they have hearts of stone. And unfortunately, Romans 1.22 says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and bird and animals and creeping things. And this is true of the Philistines. That their wisdom, though it felt logical, though it felt thoughtful, though it even felt somewhat in step with the ceremonial law, missed the point. And so as we, as we see, they, they decide to have five golden mice and five golden tumors that they'll put in a little box, and they want to send the Ark of the Covenant back. 
And so here's what they decide to do. In all of their wisdom, they say, okay, let's take two cows that have never been yoked up, right? They've never worked. Who don't know how to carry a cart or work under the weight of a yoke. We're going to put the ark on them, and then we're going to take their kids from them, right? Their calves. And we're going to put their, their calves way over here. So they'll probably just take a hard right towards their children as soon as we put the yoke on them. But if they make that 12-mile trek to Beth Shemesh, then we'll know that all of this affliction was actually from the Lord. And so as God's providence would have it, it says that they, they, they move neither to the right nor to the left. <coughs> but they went directly to Beth Shemesh. And so what are we to make of the Philistines' wisdom here? Right? Because it kind of seems like it works, right? If the, if the point was, if the reason they were afflicted was because God was displeased, they come up with a concoction here of uh, sorcery, paganism, and a failed attempt at the Levitical law, but the affliction goes away. The tumors are gone. Was God pleased with them? Did they satisfy the wrath of God? That is not how we should read this. In fact, let me just, I just, let me say this. If you're in here and you're not a Christian or you're unsure of what faith is real and, and not real, let me just say this. If, if you are currently in a season of, of, of flourishing and blessing and joy and, and, and you are like the Philistines at the end of Verse 12, and the affliction of God is no longer on you. You should not interpret that as his pleasure with you at all. Because, friend, unless you are in Christ, he is permanently and eternally displeased with you. And until each of us were in Christ, the same was true of us. And so maybe an alternative reading for the Philistines and for you is what we see in Romans chapter two, verse four. Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Friends, God's kindness to the Philistines at the end of verse 12, by staying his anger, was not a nod of commendment towards their actions but it was meant to lead them to repentance. And we know several chapters later that they don't repent. They are captured and they are destroyed. And so friend, if you're here and that's you, why don't you consider that his kindness towards you is actually to lead you back to him? not for you to continue into a lifestyle of religion or ritual that you think pleases him. 
Verse 13 makes a transition. So we saw the, the wisdom of the Philistines. And now in verses 13 and 18, we see the wisdom of Israel. And so that, that kind of makes sense, right? Okay, so if, if the Philistines were a pagan people, they really couldn't please God anyway. Right, but the, the Israelites, these are God's chosen people, set apart as a holy people, a chosen race. Surely they could please God. Well, what we find out is they don't. Because there, there's actually a distinction. I think this is important. Theologically, this is important. That there's this distinction between God being pleased with us and us pleasing God. Right? So God being pleased with us is an eternal salvation issue that we see in Romans 13. I'm sorry, Revelation 13, that happened before the foundations of the world. That is an eternally satisfying act. God's pleasure with us through the sacrifice of Christ. That is not the same as what we see in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are to live in such a way that pleases God. And so you, you can be God's people. You can be God's child. And he is pleased with you in Christ and still not please him. And so that's sort of the dilemma we find ourselves in here with, with the nation of Israel. Right? So the, the cart made the 12-mile trek up the Sorek Valley towards Beth Shemesh, and it basically hits a rock and stops in the middle of the harvest fields. And so the people of, of Beth Shemesh are, are harvesting their fields. And they look and they see the Ark of the Covenant, which, remember, for them was the visible representation that the presence of God was with them. And, and let me just pause there. Praise God that we live on this side of the cross, that as Christians, we never have to see the presence of God coming and going. That in Christ, his presence is always with us. And so these Israelites are, are sitting in the fields, they're reaping the harvest, and they, and they see the Ark of the Covenant coming, and it stops right in their presence, and it says that they rejoice. They were excited to see the presence of God. And what do they do? They take the, the cart, they bust it up, and they use it for wood. They take the cows, and they sacrifice them. And they call the Levites, because only the Levites are to carry the Ark of the Covenant. They take the Ark of the Covenant out. They're, they're doing a lot of really good things right now. They're celebrating the presence of God and its return towards the people. But again, again we see that the nation of Israel failed to please God. Because a really important part of the Levitical law was that no one was to look on the ark of the covenant. 
And they did. And they knew that. And what we find just a few verses later is that the Lord disciplines them for that. And isn't it interesting how they checked almost every single box of what wisdom means, right? The skill or ability to know what to do, to discern right from wrong. But doesn't our, doesn't our worldly wisdom look awfully close to godly wisdom? Don't we oftentimes wrap our worldly wisdom in a godly cloak? Right, because the, the real difference in the definitions, worldly wisdom is after repair of relationship or, or repair of situation. Give me wisdom to know what to say to this person, what to do, what to, what to make the relationship right with my spouse or my child or my boss. Wisdom to know where to spend my money or my time. But godly wisdom is distinctly concerned with how to please God. Pleasing man, worldly wisdom. Pleasing God, godly wisdom. Don't we kind of sit over here trying to please man and then call it godly wisdom? Aren't the Israelites kind of doing the same thing? Lord, we want to worship you. We want to sacrifice to you. We want to call the Levites because that's what you've commanded us to do. We, we, we want to rejoice at your presence. We want to praise you for who you are. But we're really just concerned with winning the battles again. We're really just concerned with our personal gain from you being back around. So God becomes sort of a cosmic slot machine. And it does not go well for them. In fact, it says in verse 19, I'll just read it. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. In the original language, it, another way you can say it is he struck 70 men and the people mourned because the Lord had struck them and the people mourned because the Lord had destroyed them with a large wound. You see, the nation of Israel in this moment lacked true wisdom because Psalms 111 tells us that, that wisdom is actually the fear of the Lord. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what we find is that Israel's response towards the afflictions that God lays on them look very similar to the afflictions of the pagan nation of Philistine. Look in verse 20. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That looks a lot like what the men of Ashdod said in chapter 5, verse 7 through 8. 
And what's, the, what's Israel's remedy as soon as they're afflicted in the valley of Beth Shemesh? Let's move it to another city. It's exactly what the Philistines did. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of true godly wisdom. And the Philistines didn't fear God. And at this point in the history of Israel, we're going to find out just how much they didn't fear God throughout the rest of 1 Samuel. In the book of Proverbs, the writer ties fear of God and wisdom with trusting God. He ties them together throughout the whole book. That, that true wisdom is fear of God, and true fear of God is to trust God. That's why it says in Proverbs 3, verse 5, it says, Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. Do not trust in your own ways. Do not trust in your own wisdom. And how often do we do that? How often do we look for wisdom from a unwise source? We need wisdom on how to fear God and trust him and know him, but we don't go to the place that can give us that answer. We seek wisdom from the unwise, don't we? We seek discernment from that which leads to destruction and that which God himself calls abominable. And we are all guilty of this. And the nation of Israel learns a hard, hard lesson here. And just because you are God's chosen people, that doesn't mean that you please God. Doesn't mean that you fear God. Doesn't mean that you know God. Doesn't mean that you trust God. And so we're 0 for 2 at this point. Wisdom of the Philistines, the wisdom of Israel. But we get a sort of climactic ending with the wisdom of God in verses 19 through chapter 7, verse 2. Up until this point, the wisdom of man has led to destruction and death and affliction. So we don't have time to unpack it today, but when we talk about human characteristics or human qualities about a non-human entity, we can't think about them the same way, right? So if the Bible says that, that the Lord regretted that he made the people, right? We see that in uh, early part of Genesis with the people during Noah's day. It doesn't mean that the Lord actually regretted something, right? It's, it's different when you're ascribing a human characteristic to a non-human deity. And so think about it. So if we think about wisdom, right? Wisdom is something we aspire to. Wisdom is something that we want. Wisdom is a skill that we try to develop or as we see with Solomon, wisdom is something that some of us have and some of us don't. Right? I think we would acknowledge that, that some of us 
uh, know others in our lives that, that appear to have wisdom and discernment on practical matters, on matters of how to live in such a way that pleases God or how to, how to work in such a way that pleases God or parent or, 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 or all sorts of things. Wisdom is not something that God has a skill in. Wisdom is God. And so for us, it is a characteristic. For him, it is his essence. So he is wisdom, right? So Stephen Charnock is a, um, an old Puritan pastor, and he says that the wisdom and knowledge of God, it's not knowledge by drops. The perception is total and instantaneous, so God, from forever past, has been as wise as anyone could ever be. He doesn't develop or grow in his wisdom. And again, we, we do not have the time to unpack the doctrine of the wisdom and knowledge of God, but we should at some point. The psalmist says in Psalm 147, Verse five, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is infinite. Or Isaiah 40, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or, or what man shows him counsel? Who did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and who taught him knowledge and who showed him the way of understanding? God is infinitely wise. And we are infinitely foolish. But yet we are convinced, aren't we? The same way the guy with the nail in his shoe, that the way to wisdom, we know it. We can do it. We can pursue it. But we can't. But in God's divine providence, we do see, Daniel chapter 2, that he reveals deep and hidden things. So it is the pattern of the character of God to share his wisdom with us, to administer it lavishly on his people. I'll read Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. This is so good. Romans 11, verse 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Friends, God's wisdom in 1 Samuel chapter 6 is displayed through his justice because Israel had broken the law by looking on the Ark of the Covenant. And as Paul David Tripp stated, grace is not calling something that's wrong right. Grace does not excuse sin. God could not excuse the sin 
of Israel. And in his wisdom, he displayed his justice. And so then, what is our hope? What is our hope for true wisdom? Right? We know that Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 5 of his letter to them that be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, for the days are evil. So we're commanded to live in a particularly wise way with a particularly Christian type of wisdom. What are we to do? Right, the Philistines kept focusing on the thing. They kept focusing on how to stay and chill the wrath of God. The Israelites kept focusing on, okay, how do we get God back on our side? Right? They kept focusing on the thing, the ceremonial law, what they wanted out of it. That's what worldly wisdom does. Worldly wisdom takes our eyes and our hearts and focuses it downward. But godly wisdom has a way of sort of lifting our eyes and our hearts that way. Because it's not about the thing. It's not about the situation. It's not about the problem. It's about going to the source of all wisdom. It's about finding true wisdom in the only thing that which is wise. And we, we need wisdom, don't we? We need wisdom on matters of, of holy living. We need wisdom on matters of brotherly love. We need wisdom on matters of politics and vocation, marriage and family, moral direction and decision. We need wisdom on when to speak up and when to be silent. We need wisdom on how to parent. And the list goes on and on and on. Friends, we need wisdom that we don't have. But 1 Samuel chapter 6 reminds us, just like the psalmist said, That wisdom or fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. And in another text he says, to be with you is the fountain of life. So our singular hope for wisdom is God himself. But that's, that's always been true though. Right? That was true thousands of years ago for the Israelites. That their only hope for wisdom was God. So what makes us different? Well, we know that Christ's life, death, and resurrection accomplished a number of things. First and foremost, is it gave us presence and access to God. 
right? Because prior, the Ark of the Covenant was in the most holy place, which was covered by a veil that only the priest could go in once a year, the high priest. That meant that if you were a regular Jew, you didn't have access to the presence of God. Somebody went before you, the priest, which is why Jesus is called the great high priest because he went before us to the presence of God and purified us through the offering of his blood in the same way that the Old Testament saints offered the blood of animals, which was never going to cleanse them of their sin. Jesus offered his blood for us, thereby paving a way for us to have immediate and total access to God through Christ. Where these Old Testament saints, they had intermediary wisdom, right? It was wisdom through like another source, through a priest. But we have direct access. And so how are we to think about pursuing wisdom? Colossians chapter 2. And we'll conclude with this. This is Paul's letter to the saints in Colossae. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Friends, if we are to be wise, we must know Jesus. In him are buried all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that we need for life and godliness. If we were to think well about politics, about race, about marriage, about the church, about people, we must think how Christ thinks. We must be wise in the way that Christ was wise. And how can we be wise if we aren't with him? The concept here in Colossians is that everything is balled up into the person of Christ and it is a lifelong journey with him to uncover and to know and to begin to see and experience those wisdom. And in his divine providence, he lets them out and displays his wisdom to us when we are in his presence. So if we are to live wise, we are to be with Christ. But if we're going to be foolish, the answer is simple. Don't pursue Christ. 1 Corinthians tells us that the, the wisdom of man is foolishness. And the foolishness of God is wiser than any wisdom of man. And so if you want to think more about what it might mean to pursue the wisdom of God, which is Christ. Today, this evening, this morning, or tomorrow morning, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 2, 16. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 2, 16. Friends, our only hope to live as wise people Husbands, wives, daughters, brothers, sisters. Is to pursue and know 
Christ Jesus the Lord. And to not know about him, but to know of him. The nation of Israel knew about God. The Philistines knew about God. But he's after you knowing of him and being found in Christ. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.